Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I'm wondering what makes you predictably impatient. You know you're just going to lose it if this happens. Maybe it's drivers who drive too slow in the passing lane. Maybe it's people who play games too competitively or, by contrast, not competitively enough for your tastes. Or maybe you're trying to teach an eighth grader algebra. And you think it's really simple. You know, you solve for X. Like, what is your deal? Like, you know all of the principles that have led to this moment, and yet this is evading you. Or maybe it's the news, because you watch the news and you get instantly agitated because of the bias or perspective of the newscaster. Or maybe it's a product. You know, I I purchased this product the other uh, month that was supposed to whiten my teeth, like take away 20 years of coffee stains in one hour. And I thought... That's amazing. Yeah, it, 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 it did nothing. I mean, I think it made them worse. Um, or maybe you're married to somebody who tells the same stories over and over and over again, and you're expected to really enjoy that, you know, laugh the whole time. Or maybe you're really irritated by people who don't text you back right away, right? Who, who wait like, I don't know, 15 whole minutes before they respond to you or whatever it is. But uh, we all have areas of very easy agitation and impatience. And uh, I, I think that all of those things pale in comparison to the agitation and impatience that we feel when we are in the midst of acute suffering. When we're really feeling the pains of life, then many more things can become sources of our impatience. So maybe your house is falling apart. You know, you need a new furnace and a new roof, and you can't afford both. Actually, truth be told, you can't even afford either one of them. You don't have enough money, but you need to make those repairs. Or maybe you have health problems that have no clear diagnosis, and you keep going to doctors, and they keep telling you divergent things, and you can't seem to get an understanding of what's really happening. And so you're, you're growing agitated and impatient. Or maybe you struggle in your marriage. You know, you're surrounded by seemingly happy couples, but you yourself feel deeply at odds with your spouse. And there's a lot of agitation in the system, and you've been to counseling, and you've read the books, and you've, you've done what you could, but it's not working out very well. Uh, or you're struggling with some very secret debilitating addiction, and you're terrified to let anybody in on that secret but you get easily agitated about those things, and it makes you very impatient. When are things going to get better? When, where's my breakthrough? You know, every, I'm surrounded by happy people. Why can't I be happy? Why won't things fall into place for me? Yeah? Well, James is writing to an audience of sufferers. You may remember that he begins his letter by, by talking about his audience. He calls them the, the 12 tribes in diaspora, We don't really know what that means, except these are people who have been um, kind of cast aside by the 
by the, the, the cruelties of life, and they've, many of them have become homeless or sent away from their families of origin. You know, they're, they're destabilized. They're not doing well. They're maybe in new cities or new countries. That's what diaspora means, people that are cast out or sent out. Uh, and so there's that. And he also, in the most immediate context of our letter, was talking about rich people who abused the poor. And many people in James' churches were poor. And so they know what it means to be oppressed and have somebody's boot on their neck. Yeah? So he's talking to people who are in the midst of great suffering, where every day is agony. And this is what he says to them in verse 7, which is really the framing verse for our passage. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, in this entire passage, uh, James offers us various things. So, James offers us examples of patience, he offers us the opposite of patience, and he offers us the source of patience. So, I'm going to be talking about those things tonight. But James does use, throughout this passage, three examples to illustrate the concept of patience. Now, before we get to those three examples, I just want to note that the word patience in Greek is makrothumeo, makrothumeo. It's a combination of two words. Macro means large, thumeo means passion or suffering. So, large suffering, where we get the term long-suffering in the King James Version, long-suffering. Long-suffering could be practically defined in a myriad of ways, but here's the most helpful definition I've heard. And it's this, patience or long-suffering is aching mildly with a sense of hope. Aching mildly with a sense of hope. Not reactively, aching on the inside mildly with a sense of hope. In other words, long-suffering from a Christian perspective means not being owned by suffering even when you're suffering, not being completely hijacked by it, by that negativity, but also living with the hope that this suffering is temporary and will not last forever and therefore is not definitive. So, aching mildly with hope. Well, he gives three examples of this aching mildly with hope. He talks about a farmer, he talks about the prophets, talks about Job. Well, this is what he says about the farmer in the passage. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Now, almost everyone in James's audience would have understood this image because 90% of, of his audience was no doubt agrarianly oriented, right? These are people who knew all about farming. That's why Jesus, by the way, used agrarian illustrations all the time in his parables because it really connected to where people uh, labored. Well, farming is by necessity a vocation of patience. It's a vocation of patience. It's utterly unrushable because so much of your labor takes time. And I like how he even talks about the early and the late rains. The farmer waits for the early and the late rains. What does he mean? Well, you know, it, it, it isn't like, you know, the context that James is writing in isn't like Western Pennsylvania in the spring where it just rains every single day and the sun never, ever shines. Um, they actually have bursts of rain and then lots of dry periods. So they have two big bursts of rain. One is in the spring and one is in the autumn. But the thing is, they had to wait for both of those uh, bursts of rain to be over before crops could be properly gleaned. You, it, one rain wasn't enough. 
You had to wait till both were, were done. These things do take time, and you can't rush it. It's not like if you want your daisies to grow faster, you should go and start pulling on them, because if you do that, they'll die. Um, farming is an unrushable business, so he says you've got to remember how, how the basic sustenance of our lives is gleaned. Remember that process, because it takes time. And then he, he moves from creation theology to, to specific revelation. He talks about the, the Old Testament and major figures in the Old Testament. He talks about the prophets. In verse 10, he writes, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, remember, prophets were Old Testament oracles. Their vocation, their task was to demystify the will of God so that it would not be full of question marks for people. And that was often a very destabilizing task because when God's will was then made manifest, people didn't often like what they heard, yeah? So when they held mirrors up to the blemished society, the blemished society revolted very often. So it made the prophets' lives very miserable, and they didn't see a lot of transformation in people. They also did something else, though. Prophets not only held the mirror up to society, they made predictions about the future very often about this messianic king who would come to rescue people who are absolutely uh, locked in the dark, yeah? But all of these prophets foretold about a Messiah that they never saw with their own eyes. And so they had to be patient, waiting for that day to come, if not for them, certainly for their children or their children's children, yeah? So he talks about the prophets, and then he talks about Job. Job is the iconic Old Testament sufferer. He writes, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Now, for those of you who don't know, Job was a, um, a colossally wealthy Old Testament figure, very devout man, who was, due to various circumstances beyond his control, robbed of everything but his wife, who was a complex figure. Um, uh, he lost his money, he lost his children, he lost his health. And I think it's very interesting that he talks about the steadfastness of Job, some translations say the patience of Job, because if you read the book of Job, he doesn't seem, at least at first glance, terribly patient. Um, because as soon as he's done mouthing the words, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, he changes in tone to gripe about his situation for 40 chapters. And so that doesn't seem terribly patient. And yet, here's the patience of Job. He never lets go of God. Even when he doesn't understand, even when he's raging out, he's almost like Jacob who's wrestling and, say, and saying, I won't let go until you bless me. But he's, he's attached and he wants to understand. By the way, he never does understand. He's never given an answer why the tragedy struck him in his life, but he still never turned his back on God. Now, James is giving you examples. He's giving his readers examples, a farmer, the prophets, and Job. And let me just say something about theology and illustrations. This is a sidebar, but not an unimportant one. Scripture is filled with both theology, that is, God talk, how God functions in the world, and narrative, sort of enfleshing that theology. And both are really important because we are creatures of both left brain and right brain sensibilities. We need certain illustrations to ground the ineffable, to ground the concepts. They'll never ground it completely or comprehensively, but they help us to understand a little bit about the theology. They concretize the theology. Uh, and so James uses three examples to say, everybody in my little crowd, in my churches, sometimes you have to wait. By the way, 
people uh, who are worried that they're not growing enough in Christ or however they themselves formulate that, which is probably probably troubled, by the way, that, you know, how we have plans for our lives that aren't always God's plans. But if you don't see any traction in your life, many people don't. They say, look, I've been doing this new prayer routine. I've, I've fasted three times, and I'm not seeing any growth. I don't see what's happening. I don't see any development. It's like, it's yeah, because you've only done it a month, right? If you actually kept doing it, let's say that you took three minutes a day and really engaged with God for three minutes a day, and you did that fairly consistently for like five years, it would pivot your life. But you wouldn't know that if you just checked it out within the month. But if you play the long game, as God does with us, and you're patient with it, you'll be amazed at what either you see or what other people around you see. Yeah, but patience. So he says, here are three examples. But then he warns people. He says, there's also something afoot that is the opposite of patience. And Chad preached about it at length, so I won't go into it very much except just to make a few comments, but it's in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, James is warning us, and this is incredibly important for us to hear, whether or not we're in the midst of acute suffering, because someday you will be, and you need to carry this little lesson with you. Uh, You can make your suffering infinitely worse by how you articulate your pain, you can make it, I will say it again, infinitely worse, and not just for you, but for everyone else around you. He says that we can do this through grumbling. What is grumbling? Grumbling is when we take inner tumult, frustration, unmet needs, traumas, agonies, things that we have sat on and ruminated on for two weeks or 25 years. We take those things that are internal and we morph those internal pains into verbal arsenals. And we start making the world pay for all the hurt that we feel. And maybe you've run into this in your family where somebody's very easily easily agitated and frustrated and you've said to them, look, don't take all your anger out on me. Meaning, I don't deserve this. And very often, you don't. Grumbling is verbal violence. That's not an exaggeration because James is the one who said, uh, based on the work of the Proverbs, that life and death is in the power of the tongue. Not pleasantness and unpleasantness, life and death. Uh, By the way, if you don't believe me, just see what gossip can do to a church or an institution. It can bring it to ruination permanently. It's a very vicious thing. What I found, though, in my own personal life and engaging with people is grumblers very very rarely realize they're grumblers. They just think that they speak the truth. They just care about honesty, integrity. You can care about honesty and integrity in such a way that you ruin both integrity and honesty uh, based on the mode or the energy that is compelling you to care about those things. Grumbling capitalizes on our suffering. It reinforces our pain because the more we grumble about a situation in our lives that is wrong, the more we calcify those devious emotions within ourselves. Um, Let me give you an example. I was uh, speaking to a woman years ago, actually in southern Pennsylvania, so nowhere near here. No, nobody knows her. Uh, She has an autoimmune disorder that is quite serious and gives her all sorts of unpredictable pains. And her life is, uh, is very challenging. But because of her, the way that she expresses that, 
verbally to anyone who will listen, it makes her situation worse because she says things, you know, no one really understands what I go through day to day. And even when I express it to them, nobody feels badly enough for me. I don't sense pity from anybody. Nobody helps me. I still have to do the same things that anybody else normally would. And everybody else is forming these little cliques. And I'm not invited because they know I'm, you know, I have challenges. And so everybody's clicky. And I'm not encouraged to join in. And everybody thinks they're better than me. And this is sort of the constant, those are the mantras that come out of this person. The problem with that is that it capitalizes on our suffering and makes it worse because it makes people want to keep their distance because of the negativity. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so that's what happens whenever we start griping and grumbling and tearing the world to shreds with our words, becoming like verbal piranhas with jagged teeth, people back off. And if that's happened to you, don't blame other people for backing off. Like if 18 people have a problem with you, it might be you. Just saying, like it's worth considering. And Scripture, by the way, condemns grumbling incessantly, uh, principally in the Exodus narrative, where in the wilderness, the people are feeling all sorts of discomfort. And so they grumble against the Lord and against Moses. And what does God do in response? He offers temporal judgments on people as they grumble. Uh, My point is that grumbling surcharges our suffering and makes us, therefore, more impatient and more difficult. So he warns about the opposite of patience. And then he talks about the source of patience, gives us a little hope. And this, again, goes back to the opening verse, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Notice, the source for patience is not the self. The source for patience is theological. It's God. Be patient, my Uh, my brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So the solution is coming towards us, walking our way, and it's God. Notice, by the way, what James does not promise us in this passage, even though I wish he did. He doesn't promise the solution to our suffering is that prayer will cure it all. He doesn't say that our bodies will always be healed. He doesn't say that our slanderers will always apologize and get converted. He doesn't, I don't know why I was Irish there for a second, but I was. He doesn't say that poverty will be overturned. Instead, James is not situational, he's theological. He's theological. He says, be patient, for the Lord is coming to you. Not just be patient, because that would be cruel. I once had a dentist with motivational posters all over the wall, and he was like doing root canals, and I'm bleeding, and it's horrific. And he never used enough Novocaine, so I can sort of one-third feel everything he was doing. And right in front of me, there was this stupid cat poster um, with a cat uh, that was hanging upside down from a tree saying, hang in there, buddy. And I'm like, I want to sue you. I don't know on what grounds, but I wanted to sue my dentist. But hang in there. James is not saying, hey, buddy, you know, life is complicated. What are you going to do? Just give it your best shot. He's not saying that. He's saying, be patient until, until, until there's an end date to all of this, until the coming of the Lord when you won't need patience anymore because you'll have everything that you've ever wanted, everything that you really need to quell the, the storms within, to make you feel lighter on the inside. Uh, He's saying that the Lord is coming, and therefore, um, we wait for that time. That's why James' examples are people that suffered with hope. They ached mildly with hope. Consider the farmer who eventually got a harvest, yeah? Consider the prophets who eventually would see God's restoration through the Messiah. Uh, Consider Job who received his fortunes back. 
and who had his life returned to him. He said in the book of Job, I know that in the midst of my crucible, I know that my Redeemer lives. And someday I will see God with my own eyes. I'll see him like a friend and not a stranger. He knew that a better day was coming. So if your week has been an utter hellscape, that is very temporary because somebody is walking your way. Somebody's walking your way even now to bring a whole new kind of world, a whole new inner and outer experience, a whole new kingdom to replace the, the ashen kingdoms of this world. And we know the end because of Revelation 21. We know the end of the story. God was good enough not to leave us in, in the dark when it came to the end of all things where he, he has his apostle write, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain for any more for the former things have passed away. Now, I'm going to geek out with you for like 20 seconds. This is from Hans Uns von Balthasar. He's, an, he's a theologian, a genius, who writes this, and I just had to quote him because of his name. God intends man to have all good, but in God's time. And therefore, all disobedience, all sin, consists in breaking out of time. Patience is intrinsic to Christianity, the power to wait, to persevere, to endure to the end, not to transcend one's own limitations, not to force issues by playing the hero or the titan, but to practice the virtue that lies beyond heroism is the meekness of a lamb which is led by the good shepherd. But not to act out of our time, not to act out of our time, God's word to us who suffer is this, not forever, not forever. God is the encroaching solution. Now, just one little caveat. I think James' comments regarding patience and waiting on the coming of the Lord can be misread to encourage a kind of quietism. That is, look, he's saying never act in the face of suffering or injustice. Just wait it out. Wait it out. Um, Get into a bunker. Wait it out. Uh, Well, no. I mean, James can't mean that because he's already written in this very letter that Christians are to help the poor, to shun favoritism, and to act justly in the present. So he sees that there's times when we ought to engage, yes? Um, But he clearly thinks um, that there are times when we can't. There are times when we can end suffering and times when we're not able to. The reality is that some situations are so dark that only a God-ordained apocalypse can fix them. But see, the source of patience for James is theistic trust. Theistic trust. For James, the only solution is God, the God who walks towards you. Uh, You have to trust that God is, that God intervenes, and that God will definitively solve your crisis and the, the crises of this world. Impatience, our own impatience, in fact, in some ways evidences a lack of trust, either that God won't manage this, so I need to enter in with every trick I have in my bag of tricks. I must, or nothing will happen. Or that God is in the heavens but doesn't care, or the heavens are empty. Abraham, by the way, dabbled in that lack of trust, that impatience, when he disbelieved in his old age that he and his aged wife would have children, so he finds another way, right, with Hagar tries to bypass the miraculous plan of God. But patience is this theistic disposition that says, I can't solve every problem. I can't afford every herbal supplement that would cure me at the health food store. 
I can't change every dysfunctional person in my family. I can't even change a lot within myself. And I won't always feel very good in this life. But if I take out my impatience on other people through random, sputtery, verbal assaults, I will make everything far worse than it has to be. No one said, my hope and my patience resides in the fact that Jesus Christ has already proven himself by his resurrection that he can overcome the worst suffering imaginable, and that same risen Savior has vowed to make all things new. And all things is a pretty broad term that certainly includes me and my own troubles. That's the disposition of patience that he wants us to have. That's the source that creates the patience within us. So I'll close with this illustration. A true story. I, over 10 years ago, I attended an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Um, alcoholism is not my own personal struggle, but I love those meetings because what happens in them feels very real and unpretentious to me. So I like going. And some of the meetings are open meetings, so anybody can go. And AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, is very big on the theme of patience. So I went in this church basement that was dedicated to, to meetings. And they have signs and slogans all over the walls based on various tips from the 12 steps. And they're all about patience. The, there's the sign that says, easy does it. There's one that says, one day at a time. And my favorite, expectations are premeditated resentments. And it's all about the sense that when an alcoholic gets all frenetic and crazy, they have to drink to calm down. So the whole system is to say, look, just take it easier. Take it easy. It'll be all right. Anyway, there was a man giving a talk uh, to this AA meeting, and it was a speaker meeting, so all, that's all it was. He was giving a, a, a testimony. And he was very well-dressed. Uh, he was a CEO at one time for a very growing tech firm. And in that career, he was not used to being particularly patient or forbearing with his subordinates, let's say. He was, by his own confession, rather ruthless and rather hard on people and used to pride himself on the phrase, I don't suffer fools lightly. By the way, never say that about yourself. It's horrifically arrogant. Um, I never suffer fools. Well, who are you? Anyway, maybe a fool. Anyway, um, but after getting a DUI and after breaking his back in that same car accident in which he got a DUI and after losing his job, he got sober. And he said that his sobriety gave him a whole new vision of life and of God. And this is what he said in that meeting. God is calm with us. God is calm with us. I don't understand why I didn't lose everything good in my life. I still have my wife and my kids don't hate me. And I have a new job. And I'm able to pay my bills. The 12 steps have not given me my life back. They've given me a much better life. But I did deserve to lose it all, but I didn't because God was so calm with me. God is calm with me. What was he saying? God is patient with us. See, when we're theists, when we lean into God, we lean into the one who is patient and long-suffering with us and demonstrated that long-sufferingness on the cross. Maybe the CEO knew something that Peter knew when he wrote these words in his second epistle. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. No, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish. Not wanting any to perish, but everyone 
to come to repentance. God is calm with us, friends. Because of the cross, God is eternally patient with you. So, because the source is patient with us, we can begin to not hate ourselves all the time and be so impatient with ourselves because God is patient with us. And we're all in a learning posture here. We're all growing, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly, but we're all learning together. And maybe then, if you feel a little more patience within yourself, you can offer some of that to everybody who's sitting next to you, everybody in this room, because they need your patience too, because they're growing too, just like you, yeah? And so we all have this source that is eternally patient with us because all sin is forgiven in Christ. And so therefore we have a Savior and He has planned for us a very soothing future where all suffering will be resolved. For all manner of things shall be well. Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. Amen. At last, they took your life. They could not take your